Welcome to Souls Harbor's weekly podcast. We believe that God has called us to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, help them grow to be like Jesus, and involve them in reaching lost people. Listen now to this week's message. Hey everybody, welcome to our feed tonight. We're uh, glad to have you with us. We are into week four of Christ and Revelation and looking forward to working through uh, how Christ is depicted in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. So welcome. We're glad to have you all with us. I've been keeping an eye on the feed here. I see Bill and Jan are with us. Hope you guys are doing well, Bill. I hope you're still feeling uh, better. I see Jenny and Christine and Joe just jumped in. I think I saw Mac and Pat back up there. And I think I saw John Carter with us. So glad to have you. Dawn and Sam are out there. And I don't know who else I may have missed. I'm sure there's some others further up the feed that I can't see. I can't see everybody at one time. So anyway, welcome. We are really glad to have you tonight. We are going to pray and then we're going to jump into this tonight and see if we can't work through an entire chapter and uh, at least an entire chapter of Revelation. Tonight we're in chapter five and it ties a little bit. Actually, it ties quite a lot into chapter four, but I don't think we're going to make a lot of connections there. So, hey, let's pray. You guys agree with me in prayer and let's jump into this tonight. Lord, we love you. Thank you. Uh, We just thank you for your word and for your presence and the goodness that you offer to us. And I pray tonight as we dive into chapter 5 of Revelation and and look at Christ in Revelation, Lord, help us to just grab a hold of the mindset, the heart, the image of the the glory of what you've done for us and how much you love us. We love you and we ask you to step in tonight and be a part of all that's said here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we are in uh, week four and we are looking at chapter five. So let's just go ahead and dive into this. And I want to start tonight by going back to something that we talked about, I discussed in the very first week, just hit it real briefly because it becomes really important here in just a little bit. And that is, what is the central theme of Revelation? And I think most people oftentimes would say, uh, probably maybe it was the end times or the last days or a number of things like that, which that is certainly a, a primary theme in there. But if you look at the book itself, it's called the Revelation or the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that word apocalypse or revelation, apocalyptic or revelation, means the revealing. So the central theme of the book of Revelation is actually it's the revelation, it's the uncovering or it's the revealing of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then you can make that that connection and say it's the revealing or the uncovering of Jesus Christ and who he really is and how that is going to relate to or it's going to take us into the last days and the end times. And tonight, as we dive into this, we're going to see that to really, really be the case. That's the reason I come back to this tonight one more time. So we're going to read through a lot of the the, the scripture in chapter 5. In fact, we're going to probably hit it all tonight. And then I just want to highlight some points and some truths out of this. So if you all want to just read along with me, you're welcome to find it in your Bibles if you would like. If you like another version, that's fine. Uh, I'm going to share with you what I've got on the screen here. And we see in the first part of this chapter, and, and let me, so let me just set the stage a little bit here, okay? Chapter 4. John has written his letters to the seven churches. We covered that in the last two weeks. And as he ends that, um, there is a change in scene. And he is taken into the throne room. And in the throne room, he sees the Father, God, sitting on the throne. We'll call him the Father, but he sees God sitting on, on the throne. 
and uh, and that's where we're going to we're just gonna we're gonna hit that big broad highlight and then we're gonna jump into chapter five. So then we read in chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God, uh, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, for those of you that have never made the connection before, the seven seals of Revelation that you pick up in chapter 6, this is what they're identifying there. That's what those seals actually are. I think a lot of times we read that and we just take that as every seal is just a, a terrible thing that's going to happen on the earth. Well, it's connect. this is the way it's connected, okay? Uh, on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Now, I, I want to point out a couple things here. The first one is, notice this scroll, it is written on, it's it's full, it's filled, it's filled front and back to overflowing. And, and, and the reason for that, it, it's that's unusual, very unusual in a scroll. Typically, a scroll would just be covered on one side only. And, and it speaks to the extensiveness and the comprehensiveness of God's plan, because that's really what this scroll is about. Within this scroll that's rolled up, written front and back, is is the completeness, the comprehensiveness, the, the totality of God's plan for the world, the universe, humankind, mankind, his creation. So we've got this scroll. It's rolled up, written on front and back, and it's sealed with seven seals. So what about those seals? What is the significance of these seven seals? Well, there's a couple of ways that we can go with this. The first one is from a Roman perspective, because we're living, or they were living in a Roman era. And Roman law, I've read Roman law required certain very important documents to be sealed with seven seals, which raises the importance and the significance of this document to the very highest level. Now, having said that, in reality, probably being that John was written primarily to the Jewish people, it, it probably ties more to uh, the, the Jewish symbolism or apocalyptic symbolism uh, in the Jewish culture of the day, which would have that be more an understanding of there were seven of them because it was a sign of completeness. It was a sign of inviolability. In other words, this scroll, once it was sealed for seven times, there was nothing or no one that was going to open up and, and, and bring to pass God's plan for humankind until those seals were broken. So just some things to keep in mind as we look at this. Now also note in there, as we look at the, we picture this in our mind, this, the, the scroll with the seven seals, this, we don't know exactly how this works. I mean, I can picture a couple of things in my mind maybe, but what was unusual was um, the, the way the scroll worked. Normally I would think of a scroll, a single roll, with seven seals uh, side by side across the scroll and you would have to break all seven seals to open the scroll and read it. But the way it actually worked out, just take note of this, somehow it was partially rolled, there was a seal placed, it was rolled some more, there was a seal placed, it was rolled some more, there was a seal placed, so that as each seal was broken, a part of the, 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 um, the plan was fulfilled. Now there's some other possible scenarios, the way this could be seen, and I don't want to dive into those tonight, but I just want you to see that, that it's not just your traditional typical scroll, seven seals side by side. There was something unusual going on there. What it contains though, and I think the most important thing we can, we can understand and we can grapple with is it contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny for this world. It cannot be opened or completed until the seals are broken. And, and I think it's important we don't just brush over this. God had 
and God has a, a full, complete, total plan for his creation. And it wasn't a plan that was put together at the point uh, where Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It was God's plan from the beginning. We're told that Jesus, the lamb, was slain pri even prior to um, the founding foundations of the earth. So j just understand this is a comprehensive, comprehensive plan that we're talking about tonight. And let's just look for a moment at the background that comes along with this. We, we, we got to remember, too, that Revelation wasn't written in a vacuum, okay? It was written to the Jewish people. It was written in the first century. It was written to a people that were very familiar with apocalyptic-type literature, genre of literature, and they understood They understood better than we understand, in a lot of ways, the symbolism, and it, and it connects back into um, many of the, the, the texts they would have had that maybe aren't in our Bible that wouldn't be considered canonical, but it also ties back into texts in our Bible that are. And I want you to just see this connection with the whole idea, the concept, the symbolism of a scroll. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we get this. And it, it's God's speaking to Ezekiel that you need to share judgment that is coming upon my people. And, and I don't know that there's a connection there exactly, although there's plenty of justice and judgment and revelation. But I just want you to see the scroll part of it, this and, and see why they would understand the symbolism perhaps even better than we would today. In Ezekiel, it says, Behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and the back. There's the significance again. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So the idea of, in, in, in first century uh, Jewish culture, of a scroll of significance with writing on front and back, um, being understood, it, it was just it would have been understood. It would not have been unusual or strange or alien in any way. I also want to point out Psalms one thirty nine sixteen, just talking about the fact of God's plan and and God's written plan. And, and this is a little bit more personal than it is, um, you know, nationally or universally. But it says, "Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them." The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And I just say this to you tonight. Don't ever feel like your your, your life has no purpose. Some, sometimes we, including me, we, we hit places in life where we just don't know where we're going. And we ask God, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be about? And we feel almost directionless. And in those moments, don't let the enemy come and steal from you your joy and your faith. Because the reality is, if we believe God's word, that in, in your book were written every one of them. Uh, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has a plan and a purpose for every life. And sometimes we don't see it as clearly as we want to. But what I've learned through time is is that by faith, even when I don't see the plan unfolding around me and I don't understand what's going on in the plan, God is so big and it's already written down. He has the capacity. As long as I stay faithful to him, he will get me from point A to point B to point C as he chooses. And, and it's fun uh, with a little life experience to look back and see that things that you thought were going awry were actually things that were preparing you for what God had in store for you in the in the in the future. So just a couple things to think about uh, as you kind of ponder this whole idea of God's writing and, and writing the 
the future and the, and the plans of the universe in, in a scroll. We go on in verse 3 then. Let's just continue on with this. Let's look at God's plan because something happens as we move into verse 3. God's plan almost seems to be thwarted. And I want you to see this tonight. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And, and this, so the call goes out. The call goes out for somebody that is worthy to perform the service of bringing history to its foreordained, God-ordained conclusion. And, and, and realize, this isn't just a matter of getting John and people to heaven. This is God bringing the culmination of his creation. This is God also bringing justice and righteousness and judgment and fairness and, and things, you know, we see a number of times in Revelation as we progress on into the book past chapter 5 where martyrs um, and the prayers of the martyrs and the prayers of the saint are are offered up saying, bring justice, God, bring justice, God. A piece of this is God bringing the final justice that is so richly desired and deserved by people that have been abused and misused and martyred. Um, so when John looks around and he breaks out and he cries, he weeps because nobody can open the scroll. It, it, it covers a lot of territory. God's plan, it appears, is, no, is going to be thwarted. No one is able. God's plan for the universe will absolutely not be able to happen. And, and we see that in those verses. The universe itself, okay, now note this, and, and I don't want to just gloss over this. The universe itself was morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. Now, I, I don't think about that for a moment. I, I, I don't want us to just gloss over it. This is really important, okay? The universe, humanity, systems, political systems, cultural systems, um, civilizations, however you want to put this, there was nobody that had the capacity to bring about the ultimate destiny of humanity. Now, here's why this becomes important, because we have a lot of people today that are convinced that if we just had the right money, the right education, the right philosophy, uh, if we could just get along, if everybody would just believe the way I believe, think the way I think, um, the world would fall into order and fall into place, and we would be so much better off. The universe itself was morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. Those that think humanity can improve apart from God are missing a very strong reality. And yes, I, I've heard the arguments, I understand the arguments that religion, and note I said religion, not following Christ, religion has allowed and caused a lot of death and suffering and evil and wars on this earth. Of course, I could also say that those that are not involved in religion have also caused their share of genocide and death and a whole lot of things as well. But despite that fact, even though man sometimes takes religion and takes it into um, ungodly areas and ungodly directions and ungodly ways, that is not to say that we can do this without ourselves because the reality is, you know, I hear people make this argument, you know, we had the we, we had the crusades and the thousands and thousands of die that, that were killed and, and died. We I hear people talk about uh, talk about all of the holy wars that took place and, and, and the horrible things that happened. But you know, those same horrible things happened outside of religion. You could talk about the, the millions that were killed in Stalin's 
Europe, you could, or Russia, USSR, you could talk about the millions that have died in communist China. You could talk about the genocide during World War II in Germany. Those things that were not Christian religious based. We could talk about a lot of things. The bottom line is humanity on their own, whether it's any religion, any religion or outside of a religion is incapable of bringing about affecting its own destiny, at least its own destiny in a positive way. We, bottom line, we need God. We need God's wisdom, God's direction, God's hand. And ultimately, it is God who's going to step in and bring about judgment and bring about justice and bring us into that, that eternity that he's setting up for us. If somebody can open the scroll. That's where we're at in Revelation chapter 5. That was a bit of an aside. But let's, let's go on with verse 5. So John is weeping. He's crying. He's broken because nobody's going to bring about God's ultimate end and justice and fulfillment and future and destiny and all those things. But then one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And all of a sudden, the whole picture changes. Somebody comes forward and says, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't weep any longer, John. Hold on. Wait, John. There's somebody. We found one person. We found one place, one individual that, that can open the scroll. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. And let's just look at a little bit of a, the background. Again, back to Jewish culture, um, beliefs, first century. Uh, probably the reference to the Lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference to Genesis 49. And we could read a number of additional scriptures than this. I'm going to read several here. But in, in chapter 49 of Judah, uh, or of Genesis, um, there is a prophetic word being given out um, towards uh, Joseph's sons, or not Joseph's sons, uh, Jacob's sons, Israel, who became Israel, Israel's sons. And the son Judah is described this way. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A messianic, absolutely taken in the first century as a messianic passage, a messianic scripture. Another place we could look is Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Uh, probably the reference, without a doubt, to uh, the, the, the root of Jesse. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And, and notice that this, this root of Jesse, this four child of Jesse, who was the father of David. So we're in the Davidic line now. Uh, on him the spirit of the Lord shall rest, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we could go on further with that into that passage, and I would even encourage you to go and read that. Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting, the connections, the messianic connections and the connections to Jesus. Let me go to the back to that. It's Isaiah 11. I, I would encourage you to go read that entire chapter. You will love it. It, it, it just talks so much uh, about what we're describing tonight and who Jesus is. But let's keep moving forward. Uh, Revelation 5, 6, and 7. We come to this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been, it had been slain. So the lamb that was slain. But this lamb is not as we would expect a, a small, innocent, uh, helpless lamb in our culture today. This lamb had seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And all of a sudden, the lion of the tribe of Judah, John turns around, he's, he's told this, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he turns around and he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lion 
is a lamb. Not only a lamb, but the lion is a lamb that was slain. But I want you to see this tonight, okay? Don't, don't picture this as some small, meek lamb that's been just brutally slaughtered and, and had no power or no control. This lion that is a lamb has seven horns, a, a symbol of complete and total power, complete and total authority, complete and co total control. He was slain. He was he was slain, but he wasn't slain because he was helpless. He was slain because he was will he willfully allowed himself to be a sacrifice. So this lamb that's standing there as if slain, as if he has been slain, has seven horns. He also has seven eyes, which we're told, I just read, we're told what is the spirit, the fullness of the spirit of God. So he has complete insight, complete discernment, complete wisdom, complete knowledge, complete all of those things as the Spirit of God works with the Son of God. This is the lamb that was slain. So the lion becomes a lamb, but not just some innocent, weak, um, incapable lamb, but he is a lamb that chose to be sacrificed, but he is a lamb of power and authority. And that's why he can be called the lion that is the lamb. And I want you to see the symbolism in that. Uh, John one twenty nine. John in, in his gospel speaks at this, or he, he speaks it this way. It's John's gospel, but it's John the Baptist speaking. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." He's described as the Lamb. We also get this from Isaiah fifty three. This this picture of of the lion that is the Lamb. Uh, all we like sheep. Now there's the lambs. We are the lambs. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He laid on the lion that is the lamb the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Then in verse 8 in Isaiah still, it says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, so the generation where the lion that is a lamb was slain, as for his generation, they considered him as being cut off from the land of the living. In other words, they thought Jesus was dead, right? They thought Jesus was dead, prophesied all the way back in the book of Isaiah. And, and he was, he, they thought he was stricken from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave, grave with who? With the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Whose um, grave did they lay the body of Jesus in? Something to think about. A rich man. A rich man. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The lion that is the lamb is the one that comes and takes the scroll, opens it up, begins the process of the fulfillment of God's destiny for his creation. And he, in that process, part of that plan is his taking on the righteousness and taking, bearing the iniquities of us all. Some deep, powerful background goes into John chapter 5 when you connect it to Isaiah. Let's read on just a little further as we bring this to a close tonight. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll... So the lion that is a lamb has come and taken the scroll. When he does that, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now in chapter 4, they had, were falling down before God on the throne, the Father on the throne. Now they're falling down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. So, so two things here. The first one is this. They attributed the same worship to Jesus the Son that they had attributed to the one on the throne, the Father. 
Okay, so Jesus, just another uh, direction, another pointer, another marker that Jesus absolutely is fully God. Okay, but notice this, and they sang a new song. Now there's symbolism in that concept of singing a new song. When a new age happens, when a new thing happens, when a, a new covenant is put in place. You may see where I'm going with this. A new song is written and a new song is sang. And all of a sudden we have a new song being sang. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, and I got the reference wrong, this is 1 Corinthians 11, so forgive me for that. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, here's the new song, or the reason the new song was, was, was sang. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Everything we just read in Isaiah, okay? 1 Corinthians says was fulfilled in Jesus. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant. Old covenant has now transitioned into the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. And there is a new song being sang as the, 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 the lamb turns around. The, lamb that is a, the lion that is a lamb turns around and takes the scroll and has freedom to begin to open those seals. We read on in chapter 5, verse 9, the second part of it, a couple of things that I want you to see. I want you to notice the worship. Okay, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God. Worthy, Jesus is the one now being praised and worshipped, as is the Father. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, let me let me ask you a question, okay? I want to point out just one, one other thing here in this passage real quickly. What made Jesus worthy of opening the scroll? I mean, if you just were kind of blindly asked that, and just given some big picture what was going on, I think a natural tendency would say, well, he was God. He was the Son of God. Why would he have not had the, the, the right and the authority um, and the worthiness to open that. But what we read here is, as we begin to hear Jesus being praised, is not that he opened it by virtue of being the Son of God or by virtue of being fully God. Notice the three things here that made Jesus worthy. The first one is this, you were slain. You, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. So it's the fact that Jesus was slain that makes him worthy. And by your blood, you ransom people for God. The second thing is, it, by being slain uh, as a lamb that was without guilt, without sin, uh, he ransomed people for God. The second thing that makes him worthy, these people that he ransomed, interestingly, are not just the Jewish people, but it's people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then the third thing is, you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. What made Jesus worthy to take the scroll? He was slain. Um, he ransomed people for God, and he made those people into a kingdom as a corporate group and as priest to God individually. That's, it was that act, that, that work, that, that act of sacrifice and service that made Jesus worthy to take the scroll and break the seals. Not that he was God. It was, it was that thing in particular, um, which, is, which is very powerful. And it, it made kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Um, let's look a little further into this tonight. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creature and the elders, the voice of many angels. Here we are back to worship. 
numbering myriads and myriads of thousands, thousands and thousands of angels, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So we see the angels themselves offering worship. And then in verse 13 it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them, every creature, every creature, Notice how that's put, in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, all creatures and all places, all of creation that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. As he takes the scroll and he has the freedom to begin to break the seals, okay, all creation gives him the worship that he deserves. And the four living creatures said, Amen, or so be it. And the elders fell down and worshiped God, worshiped the, the lamb, the lion that is the lamb. So I hope tonight, I went through that very fast, but I hope tonight, guys, I hope that as we look at this, you begin to see Jesus in Revelation. I hope you begin to see him as the center of Revelation. He is the lion that was the lamb that had the, because of his sacrifice, was able to set in motion the fulfillment of God's destiny and God's plan and has the freedom to break those seals. Next week, as we jump into week five, we're going to look at some more scripture. We're going to actually jump well over into uh, the book of Revelation as we look at, in, our, in our next week of Christ in Revelation. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 9. So if you would like to read and, and have an idea of where we're going next week, look at Revelation 9, 1, 19, 1, chapter 19, verse 1, through uh, chapter 20, verse 3. Hope you guys have a chance to do that as you get into your devotions uh, this week. Hey, I appreciate you guys. It is so good to see you all. Uh, I, I, like you, look forward to the day we can be back to um, corporately gathering together in person again. But it's good to have you with us. It's encouraging to see so many faces. Uh, I appreciate that. I pray God is touching you and blessing you uh, throughout this week. We pray for you regularly and often and uh, love you guys. You have a great week, and I hope to be able to see uh, see you Sunday. God bless. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you're looking for a church home or are interested in what God is doing through Souls Harbor, visit us at www.soulsharborag.com. If you have an encouraging story of what God has done in your life through these podcasts, please share it with us at sharbor@indy.rr.com.